Hi there, welcome to the Climate Resilience Podcast, Series 2 on the Shoalhaven, where water-sensitive urban design is our focus. And today we're thinking about the nature of a sponge city and discussing the benchmarking process which some councils and council collaborations have begun to use to measure where they sit in terms of water-sensitive communities and how they'd like to progress forward. Climate Resilience is a podcast of local government New South Wales. I'm Gretchen Miller, and we've come to Shell Harbour with ISJO, the Illawarra Shoalhaven Joint Organisation. ISJO is a collaboration of four councils Kiama, Shell Harbour, Shoalhaven, and Wollongong. And part of its brief is to address critical matters of water on the front line of a changing climate. With me is Emma Strauss, Water Sensitive Urban Design Project Manager from ISJO. Jan Orton, a Senior Consultant from Mosaic Insights who worked with ISJO on its benchmarking. And Natalia McGregor, Manager of the Environment Team from Shell Harbour City Council. Let's begin with a quick tour around the rather stunning Civic Centre built just a few years ago to be highly water and energy efficient. So the building was done in 2018 and it's got five stars under the Green Building Council. Yes, we're really proud of it. (laughs) It's it's a really great showcase for sustainability. Yeah, so all the the windows are double glazed, so that was probably the biggest, I suppose, cost input for the sustainability rating. There are louvers, glass louvers throughout the building that open and close to regulate the internal temperature. And so this back section of the Civic Centre is our native gardens. Um, which showcases, I guess, the local endemic species of vegetation. And it's so healthy and lush and green, isn't isn't it? it? Now, as well as leading by example with the Civic Centre, it's interesting to know that at the end of last year, Shell Harbour councillors voted unanimously on a resolution to aim for net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And the development of a regional set of principles for enabling water-sensitive cities is part of their plan. So what does that move mean for Natalia's environment team? I guess it's it's a hugely exciting thing that's happened in council. It's been a long journey and there's been a lot of discussion. And so what it means for our environment team is that I guess we get the kudos to start really pushing this resilience piece. We get that backing now because it's supported wholly from the councillors. It's supported strongly also by the executive management And we get to start delving into the facets of resilience. What does it mean to us and how do we start aiming for that? Climate resilience. And this is what the benchmarking process is all about, which you're a part of, Jan, and that you've been consulted with on. Emma, can we set the scene for the benchmarking process? From your perspective, working within and across councils, what is a sponge city And why are we aiming for it in a time in which we're trying to build climate resilience? Water is part of all parts of life. So if we start to break that down, it's a pretty big task in itself and we're only looking at one aspect. So benchmarking for us was a way to start those conversations to get a good idea about what each of our councils are already doing and what we might need to start focusing on and adjusting to start building some of that resilience. And really, it was also about having those robust conversations about what's not there and what is there in all sorts of 
aspects. So we're talking the regulatory space, but also is it education? Is there enough community understanding of what we're actually trying to do here? Do we know what the target and the end goal is? And then when we talk about sponge cities, for me, that's just a visualisation, isn't it? But it's, it's a concept that came out of China. But I, I love that because it's, you can visualise what we're talking about when we're talking about maintaining water in our landscapes and this sort of stuff. It, it is about increasing the amount of yeah, water that we've got sitting within the ecosystems that are contributing to the things that keep us healthy as, as humans as well. So, yeah such a visual concept. Jan, observing from your role outside of council, how would you expand on Emma's definition, linking a sponge city with its community, but also with its surrounding environments? Yeah, I think thinking about a sponge city is a beautiful way to describe it. So it's actually accessible to most people. You know what a sponge is. But unfortunately, the water sphere is quite dominated by the technical world. So we talk a lot about infiltration and volume runoff and flooding hydrology and a lot of terms that are quite alienating. So the idea of water sensitive cities benchmarking and using terms like the sponge city is that you get to think about how does community understanding and accessibility to that knowledge and behaviours, everybody's day-to-day behaviours, contribute to that idea of a sponge city? So in a technical term, the problems around our current development is that we have shifted the ratio of infiltration or the, the amount that water soaks into the ground to the amount that runs off into our waterways, rivers, creeks and oceans. And in our natural situation, it's roughly... of the water would soak into the ground in a natural environment. It would be held up by roots and leaves and rocks and crevices and little tributaries and streams. But in our developed areas, where in some places in inner city areas of Sydney and even in some of the areas down here on the Shoalhaven where you've got lots of density, the hard surfaces becomes quite dominant in the landscape and you end up flipping that around and 75% of the water, instead of soaking in, runs off collecting pollution as it goes. So this is a whole of community problem. And as Emma was saying before, trying to describe it in terms that everyday people can think about and then think, how does my garden, how does my roof, how does my driveway? And then developers, how do I design this new development so that perhaps we are actually retaining some of that water? And we've just been walking around this magnificent building that would have water as a core part of its development. So the gardens there would be irrigated as the rain falls instead of rain hitting the pavements running straight into the gutter and off it goes. Yeah I mean the point is is if you think about the difference between one of those drains which all of us have seen I saw one the other day when I was in Brisbane where the water just goes tearing through the landscape and you compare that to a creek where branches and tree roots and rocks slow that water down we need that water we don't want it rushing out to sea. And I think as well, as Jen just mentioned, with the domination of the metric side of it and really the engineering focus, it it robs us of that ability to sort of see that role of the sponge. So that slow creek meander and, and that flexibility in the water system that we have replaced with concrete swales and this sort of stuff over time, which I guess is what we understand now we need to start undoing some of those things that have put us in a more vulnerable situation, unfortunately. Natalia, we've been to the library, which is clearly a learning hub and somewhere where you regularly run environmental talks and so on, as you were discussing earlier out in the garden. Why is it so important now that the community understand and be a part of this? What sort of language is important here? 
I think it's probably the, one of the most critical elements of, of all of this is empowering residents and local community members to understand their role in day-to-day interactions and their choices. There's only so much we can push on to developers and designers. I think people in the community really care and for the most part don't have a day-to-day awareness of what this means and how it looks so, and what they can actually ask, I suppose, yeah. of the businesses that work with them and serve them, right, like developers, for example. Yeah. Jan, what's the purpose of this benchmarking and why are sens- water-sensitive communities so critical now, given the climactic changes we're currently experiencing? So the water-sensitive cities benchmarking has come out of probably 20 years of research of knowing these problems for longer than 20 years, but the research emerged quite definitively about 15 to 20 years ago when people were recognising governments, consultants, universities recognising that we've got these large volumes of pollution. So that was a big shift from that drainage focus, get the water off quickly out into the sea, to thinking about the communities requesting more response for environment, getting a bit more demand for water quality. Governments are really slow to shift to community responsiveness, so it's taken that time to get that going. And the research was founded on the fact that Until we get a a completely whole of community view on this from the physical environment, the technical focus, the governments and governance and decision making and the community behaviours, we're not going to get anywhere. So Water Sensitive Cities benchmarking brings that multidisciplinary, multifunctional view of water in the landscape, water supply, water reuse, recycling, stormwater runoff, water pollution, receiving waters, and puts it together in a framework that governments, regions can actually look at how am I going on our decision making, on our engagement with communities, on our technical areas, on our water supply, on a whole range of things. Are we making good decisions? Have we got these policies in place? Have we got works on the ground? Do we evaluate it? How do we know we're doing better? So it gives councils or regions a bit of a spot and they're marked on a scale of one to five and they say, we're about a two and a half. We want to get to a three. We want to get to a four. We want to get to a five. And it fits very nicely into those other council resolutions about zero net emissions by 2050. It starts to put a long-term vision and ambition out there for local governments, for community groups, for state government departments and water utilities to start thinking together. You've talked about pollution a couple of times, but also we are having an increase in the likelihood of flood and drought events, yeah? Yeah, we're seeing them more often. We're seeing them more severe. And so that trend is going to continue. But what does that mean to our residents and our community? That's what we're all still learning. And I guess when we start to see things like, you know, the severity of floods actually starting to impact on areas where we've been building, obviously that creates a sense of emergency and and that's awareness building in itself. So how are we responding? And this is where I think the benchmarking was really powerful for all four of our councils and all our stakeholders. The different elements of, I guess, the water system, as Jan was just mentioning with water supply and we've got all these different stormwater and other elements they'd almost never come together. So for us to actually start having those robust conversations and getting everyone in the room to really nut out. So we've got reaction coming from the community. We do have awareness building that's happening through some of these extreme events and we're not sure how we're managing it. So do we do some benchmarking to sort of get a better understanding of that? So the project that was funded by DPI and LG New South Wales, we decided to do the benchmarking with that because for all of our councils, I guess coming together on something like that was really powerful because we haven't had those conversations yet. And so it also gives us something to come back to. 
so we can make some changes and start tweaking and see if it's going to make an improvement to our resilience in this region. Jan, okay, so Is Joe has taken up this process with you and you're now on to the visioning, which we'll talk about shortly. What percentage do you think roughly of councils in New South Wales have started this benchmarking process? A tiny percent. tiny, fairly small percentage. There's been the Hunter region, Gov Councils have done it, Is Joe's done it. There's been a number of councils in Sydney who have completed the benchmarking. And in fact, Greater Sydney has completed the benchmarking. There's cities in Melbourne and South Australia, Queensland and Western Australia also completed it. So as a research tool, we're actually starting to get quite a good picture of where cities are at. And it's a real awareness raising. The challenge is though you have to do something with that information. You have to turn it into policy and practice and you have to really look at skilling up our public servants to think in a creative, integrated and flexible way so that they can actually deliver this. It's quite a complex thing to deliver. It's a big shift from the traditional management of water. So four councils came together presumably because you reside next to each other, you have similar concerns, you have shared receiving waters, for example. So in terms of that small percentage of councils taking it up, what would you say to other council members who perhaps are keen or or curious about this process that they need to be thinking about to even start to do this? Why should you opt in as a council when goodness knows resources are always tight and they're always pressing issues? Well, I I think why do you opt in for something like this? It was a tool to really bring everyone together to start with. So it's that engagement of all the agencies. It's just absolutely crucial to look at this from a number of perspectives. You can't do that with one agency just taking responsibility for one bit and another one doing another piece of our water system. So it really is an enabler. We often make policy in a reactory kind of way. And as Jen was just mentioning, we've got to change the way we do things to have some sort of level of preparedness for the changes in climate that are coming our way. And they're already happening. We're talking about trying to change the way we do policy even to be more proactive than reactive and that is also basing it on data and actual analysis so the benchmarking we've actually looked at all these different aspects of the way we do things in our water system and how we're looking after it or not and using that information from there in what we make policies on and and how do we actually create the actions coming out of that is is crucial And if I just might add to that, yeah, yeah. so you can't measure what you don't monitor. So I think from my perspective, having that benchmark report now really highlights the areas that we need to focus on more, the areas that we, we think we're doing well in. And for our council personally at Shell Harbour, having this, I guess, reputable project that East Joe has agreed to, it gives more support, I suppose, to other elements of the larger resilience piece that we'd like to address here in council. For our council... Having this project already approved and underway and and quite successful so far gives us more support to then embark on other areas of resilience. So because we've already got senior management approval, it's being driven by ISTJO. And like basically there's a number of elements to this resilience piece that we don't have in place in Shell Harbour. Wollongong does this a lot better around minimum landscaping requirements and greening. So we'd like to develop a greening strategy which will go towards supporting the outcomes that we're trying to seek through this project. Having that model DCP, which will come out after we receive the draft regional policy and then the model DCP will help us drive further change because our DCP here at Shell Harbour 
is really in need of a, a revision. There's some delays there, I guess, yeah, through the system because there's a new state template that's coming out for DCP. So council's been reluctant to start the update process because it can take years. But these sorts of projects give us that backing and that drive to get the changes happening sooner. What's really interesting is that you mentioned, OK, so Wollongong's further down the track than you, but you now have people from Wollongong Council working here. What's that done? for the way that this council is going forward. And, I, and I'm thinking about this cross-pollination and how mm. healthy that might be. I think from the short time I've been here, my observation is that things have moved quite quickly in our development space, which is quite a positive thing. So we now have some really great planners from Wollongong that are supporting the drive to more sustainable development practices here that are not afraid to challenge the status quo and as a result we're seeing some pretty good outcomes from an environmental perspective. So recently we've had more discussions around retaining old growth trees that are listed as endangered species than possibly in the past and then I can't you know speak for the whole past because I've, I've not been here that long but anecdotally this is the information I'm receiving is that we've never had the support we've got now to effectively threaten refusal for certain developments where developers aren't willing to comply. With keeping just those with, few trees. That's right, with considering the environmental values of the site that they wish to develop. Jan, in terms of the process, how does assessment of a region happen? What is a water-sensitive city's index, for example? And maybe you could just briefly outline the ways we can measure how a community is going. What tools do you use to assess a region? So the main tool is talking is deliberating with everyone who might have a role to play in that space in the region. Because as Emma was saying earlier, there are many, many players. There are many, many facets to this. It's about how you plumb your house, where you get your water supply from, what happens when water falls on your roof, where the drains go, how clean the drains are, whether the drains go onto your beach, whether they infiltrate into the land, all sorts of things. So very much tying together the individual home with the broader environment. Yes. And then everyone in a government sense or a, a regional sense, supply sense, who has anything to do with that coming together, ideally you would have community coming into that picture as well. The major benefit of it is that you discuss these issues together and you together you come up together collaboratively a consensus of how well this region's doing. It's not a score against council. It's not a score against Sydney Water or the Shoalhaven Water Supply. It's a score for the region as a whole. How well are we doing in terms of our good decision-making? How connected is our community? How much does our community understand? How much do we work with First Nations people? When we design our open spaces, do we design them with water in mind, with climate resilience in mind, with urban heat in mind? When we look at our water supply, does everyone have access to clean, cheap, affordable water? Does everyone have access to sewerage? Is everyone protected from flooding? So it covers that whole spectrum of resilience of communities where you might have pockets of vulnerability or people who are exposed to risk during floods and starts us thinking about how does our decision-making, policy framework, implementation support better resilience, better protection from flooding, protection from drought, ongoing safe supply of water, as well as well-designed green spaces, amenity, connection to country, a whole range of things. And you can't do that if you've only got an engineer, an environmental scientist and an accountant in the room. You need to have a really wide, broad spectrum of disciplines, opinions and experiences. So you go through each of those, the seven goals, and they're across all those issues that we just spoke about, and you, you rate on a number of indicators what within each goal how well we think the region's going. 
How does the environment play into that as a figure? I mean, you've got community, but you've also got environment. Traditionally, we see those things as separate. We are now coming to understand that what happens in the natural world, we're actually part of that natural world. We put on our clothes and we live in our buildings, but we're still part of that natural world. How does the natural world figure in those deliberations and those measurements. So we would love it to figure highly, equally as highly as the First Nations and cultural and social issues, as well as the economic issues and the technical issues. And very often when we do a benchmarking exercise with the council, we will get the environment people and the engineers coming along. And we really, it's wonderful when you can get the community services people coming, as well as someone even from the community to come along, people from state government, because then you start to open up those perspectives. And that issue of nature and society and culture is at the table with the technical and the size of the pipe and the speed of the water and all those other (laughs) issues that we have to think about from a safety management, you know, funding position. And when you have those conversations where you are listening to the cultural and the social and the economic and the technical, you're really raising awareness, possibly for the first time, with each of those individuals about how everyone has a role to play. Yeah. So the point is here is it's very multidisciplinary. So let's say you're listening to this and you're a set of three small councils with limited budget, but your neighbours, you inhabit a similar bioregion. You think you might want to begin. How might you go about doing that? Emma, how did it come to be that the four councils here got together? Yeah, so I guess it was all off the back of the start of this project that was grant funded. So we actually, I guess we had the permission to come together And that was the start of it, really. So coming together for these conversations and agreeing this is what we wanted to do, benchmarking and getting a good understanding of how we're going as a region and as councils. Who proposed it? Did Uh, anyone propose it or was it...? It was put into the works program, however, there was no funding for it. So it was a big discussion piece that myself and the management committee talked about for probably a couple of months to get support from management to fund it. And... Honestly, it was a crucial piece for us. I really think it was the most important thing for our councils to do, to have a shared understanding. It was really about building that, a definition that we all understood, a process that we were all involved in together. As Jan mentioned, it was really about a tool for the conversations and not every council was the same. So there was opportunity there immediately for learning from each other. Can I just add to that? Because I think you're asking if you're a small council, you've got small resources, just don't give up, I think don't is the answer. Yeah. That you need to be brave and you need to keep going. And a lot yeah. of what's happened at Is Joe is because some people don't give up and they make it happen and they keep bringing nice. it up at the management committee and then they get it. So I was just making some notes there. You have to be the champion but find a champion. And it might not be in your team, it might be somebody in another team or another council. Get a little bit of evidence. There's nothing like putting a, even a brief or a simple business case to your manager who might not be a believer about the values, the savings in dollars, the waste of time, the, the terrible example of what happened when this we didn't think about water and we've got this blowout or pollution or flooding across the whole of Western Sydney. You know, there could be examples where <laughs> things haven't worked so well. Find some champions. I said that already. Don't give up. But start small. You don't have to bite off the whole thing. Start with something you can manage and then apply for grant funding to support you. They're the things that, as well as this fairly technically and 
bureaucratically focused issue on water sensitive cities benchmarking. There's a whole lot of work around behaviours in decision making to get from where you might be now to where you want to be in a in a water sensitive city. And there's a whole lot of things around behaviours and decision making that has to happen. And they're about talking to each other, networking, using champions, getting evidence, demonstrating examples of good practice, and then getting it embedded in policy. And it's like a, it's a journey upwards. Sometimes it's up a hill, but you'll get these little wins and you'll keep moving in that general trajectory towards a water sensitive city. And I guess that you might also choose to connect with council groups that have done it and talk to them about it. Natalia, what are some of the practical ways you're considering water sensitive urban design? And I'm thinking here at the moment of the coastal management partnership with Wollongong of Lake Illawarra that several of the councils share between them. How are you looking at water sensitive urban design with the lake in mind? So Lake Illawarra has an approved coastal management program that was finalised in December and that was a five-year process to develop that document and it sets out a significant number of targets or actions that we want to address at the lake and around the lake and it is a shared resource between Wollongong and Shohaba councils. I guess we've been successful in winning some grant funding this year as year one of implementation of that plan and so Some of the things we want to understand better is the pollution and water quality issues of the lake and the various areas around the lake and get a better understanding on how exactly the developments that are taking place to the southwest of the lake are affecting the lake water quality. So one of the grants we've won will go into water quality monitoring over a three-year project or improved monitoring, I should say. And one of the other grant we won is about improving the lake foreshore and the vegetation communities that add to the stability of the lake foreshore and naturally add to improve the water quality as well. In terms of your question was practical application, I suppose, of water sensitivity. There's no hard and fast answer for that. Some of the projects around the the lake include... One of the first actions, another water quality action, has been to develop a risk-based approach or a risk-based framework to managing developments within the lake catchment specifically. And again, there's a couple of huge developments taking place to the southwest that we know are having impacts on the lake. We just can't measure it too well at the moment, and that's what the grant funding will go into. So that risk-based approach has just been finalised and developed, and now the big question is how, when, and how strongly do we implement it? So I work closely with the floodplain and transport team, which sit next to our environment team, and they've largely been overseeing the development of this risk-based framework. And we've had some amazing work from local consultants who have really clearly articulated the most cost-effective and the least cost-effective management actions that can be implemented to support development. And so we've got the tools now, we've got the information. It really is about how do we embed that into the, the development application review process and I was talking about this earlier today with with my colleague that's in the floodplain team and he suggested that it's already happening it's just it's about having that ongoing conversation to keep embedding it further so we've got a number of the planning teams um, the subdivision teams that are across this they're aware of this risk-based framework and this new application it's about managing the expectations from developers because the perception is this is going to cost us more and so that's finding ways to, I suppose, strengthen our position as council and try and find a a middle ground where we support developers 
they start implementing more of these controls. And where does the cost lie? Because if it if you don't pay now, you pay later effectively. You all three of you have recently participated in you've done the benchmarking and you had a what you called a visioning meeting, right? I'm wondering where you think the most efforts are now needed to help councils improve their water sensitive performance. And I'm wondering if you're starting to see the ideas of water sensitive communities and urban design starting to permeate council structures. I guess it's about breaking down silos, isn't it? Natalia, your team, this council's recently had a, a complete reshaping of how its teams work. Yes, it has. In Shell Harbour Council now, we've got the environment section sits independent of the planning section. And we're now part of a group called the Built and Natural Environment. So we sit alongside, as I mentioned before, floodplain and transport teams. And that's been really helpful, I think, for my team. Again, I've been in the role five months, but the feedback I have from my team is that there's a lot better collaboration between the two teams. And having that level of separation directly from planning gives my team the ability to give referral advice and feedback that can be completely objective and focus solely on environmental considerations. So your question earlier was next steps from the visioning workshop. I think from a Shell Harbour Council perspective, it very much is about building that internal conversation. So the the work's been done now. It's been a fabulous project that Emma has led and we're waiting to receive the regional policy, however it will look, and then the example DCP on how we can improve our... I suppose, statutory documents and non-statutory documents to support our improved development going forward. So from my perspective, it's about creating an internal steering committee and bringing together our engineers, our planners, our subdivision personnel, environment team and the floodplain. And actually, there's one more team, assets and projects, because it is about having every key stakeholder across the fact that we now have a set of guiding principles or or measures that we want to start seeing embedded in all of our council processes. And as a council, I think we're getting a lot better every month at at improving the collaboration and the internal discussion, and largely driven from the fact that there is a huge amount of development taking place across Shell Harbour now. It's unprecedented. It's new territory. As a result, our council's grown quite significantly, I understand, over the last 12 months alone. I think that's going to have to keep happening because the workload keeps increasing. So we're play, playing catch-ups, but we also have this opportunity at the moment, I think, to make a difference, which is a, it's a great thing. Jan, as we start to wind up the conversation, this is a really complex process and that's important to knowledge. But you've witnessed turnarounds in another council that was initially reluctant. Can you tell us briefly what happened and what you saw as a trigger point for that shift? So a trigger point for the shift was a little bit earlier we were talking about starting small and using evidence. So we basically had a situation where the the general status quo was the environment team managed the water and the engineers managed the pipes and that we didn't need to talk to each other and that the solution to pollution is dilution. So that, that was the sort of the traditional approach to just getting water efficiently and effectively out of the way. And then in the last century, a lot of movement around thinking about waterways and improvement of waterways, a lot of evidence coming out. Funding from state government was released and we started to look and gather some local evidence. And and that was catchment management, wasn't it? Catchment management was a big term for a while there. Yeah, catchment management in New South Wales in the last century was a very, very big and driving process. It has dropped off the agenda significantly. 
So what we did, what was one of the big turning points for us as a council was trying to think about what was required regionally, globally in the big picture around climate and water and pollution, but apply it locally because that's all as local government you can do is work in your local area. And so what we did, we learned from research was that most planning situations were too big a size. And so community had no no way of engaging with that whole of catchment, 15 councils, 27,000 state agencies, 100,000 people. It's too hard for people to get their head around. So we came down to local neighbourhoods, place-based planning. We got a lot of evidence about what was happening in that place and we heavily engaged the community in a visioning exercise. What, what is the future for their neighbourhood? And what we found was that we started to talk to local people who had never been part of an environment group, had never lobbied council for anything, weren't politically affiliated, they just want to live in a great place and they want to make a contribution. So we found that we had enormous power by really using a scientific approach to the environment, to the community, to the social issues going on there, to the way people worked and lived, and then brought that all together in a plan, presented that to our council, and it shifted significantly the way everyone thought about delivering infrastructure on the ground. And we had a a fairly significant increase in rain gardens popping up in on the corner of streets, in parks, thinking about rainwater tanks. We started to provide incentives for um, residents to put on rainwater tanks. So within council, you saw a shift of people who were really quite rusted on and devoted to their separation and siloing. Because we all know people who, who are a little anxious about change, right? How did you see that manifest in those people? So sometimes you have to work with those people and take them on the journey and sometimes you have to go around them because there's no way you're going to see particularly if they are in positions of power or, or authority and you're a junior person. You have to go around and you have to find a champion at your level, outside your organisation or at a higher level who is going to advocate for you at that level and that's what we did. We brought evidence to the table. We worked really closely with the community so that we had enormous amounts of evidence from the community about their values, what they were hoping to see, what they were telling us in statistically valid surveys, how they were representative. So we really worked very hard to make sure that there was a really strong business case to change the way we were working. It's a democratic case as well, isn't it, really? Yeah. Yeah. We worked really closely in deliberative processes with the community to get that that movement through the bureaucracy and the way things were. Yeah. Tell me, Emma and Natalia, about hope, because what you're looking at is big changes and it can be hard. There, there are blockages along the way. How do you maintain hope and not be overwhelmed by the size of the task? I'm really excited. I think, I think this is a really good time and we're seeing a big shift socially. This is always something that's been passionate to me, but my family and friends that are on the outer that haven't had much knowledge or interest in the past are on board and are more aware. And I think social media contributes to that. The awareness, also huge events like floods and and fires just really bring people together and and get that out. So I'm full of hope personally. Absolutely. I've got lots of hope for this region. We've got lots of champions in our region. And I think connecting them, this project has been so powerful for that. Seeing cross-pollination across the four councils in our region, that has been so powerful in itself. So I actually think the changes, it's really been an enabler. Jan. 
Traditionally, local government have been in certain sections have been quite nervous about talking to the community because they don't want to let out the cat out of the bag or get howled down and lots of protests. But it's about thinking about talking human to human, person to person about some challenging issues, being open and honest that council doesn't have all the solutions. We have got some sometimes cumbersome systems in place, but that if you can show some genuine interest and information and talk to the people person to person, you tend to then get an enormous barrier whisked away and you can suddenly have a flood of partnership with people about this problem. Thank you all so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Jan Orton from Mosaic Insights, Emma Strauss from Wollongong Council and the Illawarra Shoalhaven Joint Organisation, and Natalia McGregor from Shell Harbour Council there. And this has been another episode of the Climate Resilience Podcast Series, part of the Local Government New South Wales Increasing Resilience to Climate Change Project, funded by the New South Wales Government. Don't forget to check out our other episodes in this series, Water Collaborations, about how councils and water utilities work together, and In Development, how councils and developers best work together to provide water-sensitive urban design. Our first series is still available, and it's all about rural water use in increasingly drought-prone times. We take you to Tamworth and Walker for that series. I'm Gretchen Miller. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.